This is the Education Gap Fly Show. Oh, it was a big decline. Stop stop whining, Patrilli. I guess. (laughs) What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Patrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Here at the Education Gap Fly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, Mark Weber. Mark, welcome to the show. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Yeah, well, Mark is an analyst for on education policy at the New Jersey Policy Perspective, and most relevant to today's conversation, the author of Fordham's latest study called Robbers or Victims, Charter Schools and District Finances. Also joining us as always, our co-host, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Great to be here. Great to have you. And David and Mark worked very closely together on this study. We are excited uh, to have you both talk a little bit about it. A study that I will say, Mark, some of our, our friends out there in, in education policy world, uh, you know, the, people have raised some eyebrows saying, huh, you know, Mark, known as Jersey Jazz Man on Twitter and uh, working for a group that's, uh, you know, pretty well known, a progressive organization, teaming up with the Fordham Institute on this. Uh, we like to think that this is a case where, look, we, we're going to put the data first. We're going to do good research and we are going to try to stay out of the different ideological battles. So here you go. Yeah, one would hope. But I mean, we have to be honest about the world that we're in, too. This stuff gets weaponized. Yeah. Um, I've really tried over the last few years, particularly since finishing my doctorate, I've really tried to step back and think carefully about how research like this affects policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, I think a lot of times it's very easy to fall back into your corner and not confront. I hate to use the term the facts because it's not the facts, but to confront someone's analysis or someone's, uh, you know, looking at, at, at a particular issue. And of course, with charter schools, it's highly contentious. And I mean, Mike, I'll be brutally honest about this. Yeah. Uh, and and maybe, people, well, m- maybe people will agree. I've seen a lot of what I would term bad faith argument coming from people who are charter advocates. Have I seen some from the other side? Yeah, but I don't think it's been proportionate. So I do think that when somebody like me mm-hmm. works with a group like Fordham, and, and I'll say too, and, and I give all props to David for this. To me, this was a highly intellectually rigorous process. Mm-hmm. And David really held my feet to the fire on more than one occasion. I, I wouldn't exactly say we had knockdown dragouts, but we certainly had our moments where we saw things differently. But nonetheless, I do think that when somebody like me, who has the views that I have, works with someone like the Fordham Institute, yeah, it's almost inevitable that some eyebrows are going to be raised. So, you know, having said that, this isn't a peace accord necessarily. Uh, you know, I, I have a different point of view on, on what this research means, I think, than others will. But well, let's unpack it. Maybe we've got a starting point to deal with. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and again, it's been a real pleasure working with you, Mark. I know our team has really enjoyed it. So let's talk about the study. So the basic premise here was to try to look at this relationship between charter market share right, the percentage of kids in charter schools and the impact on school district finances. 
Right. Uh, importantly, you looked at what, what we term in the report, and it's, it's not a perfect term, but it's, you know, you've got to do these things called independent charter schools. So in other words, ones that were not authorized by the district with the assumption that, you know, these, in some cases, these district authorized charter schools are a little bit of a different animal than what you might typically perceive. And, and legally, those charter schools are part of the district, right? And so we're really looking at the ones that are their own LEAs, that they're their own independent charter schools. You were able to look at this over a long period of time, which was one of the great things about the study, something like, I think, what, 17 years yeah. uh, in 21 states altogether, which is a, a big chunk, uh, yeah. which is great as well. All of which, you know, really builds on some previous studies that tended to either look, you know, in, in just one or two states or looked in a shorter period of time. And again, trying to understand this relationship uh, between uh, the, the share of charter schools and the impact on district finances. And what are some of the basic things that we, you know, we don't really have time to get into the weeds on the methods, though, boy, we could spend hours, I'm sure the two of you getting into that. But basically what we find is, is what, when, when you look at this relationship, what do you see? I should just preface this by saying that this was an extension of my dissertation, yep. uh, which was published. And that's actually what David had found. And he reached out to me after finding it. And, and frankly, part of me was like, wait, do you know like what I say on my blog, do you know what my stance is? And, you know, he did. And so that sort of began the conversation. When I initially approached this, when I was doing my research at, at Rutgers for this, I really thought what I was going to find was that there was a fiscal penalty to school districts when charters came in, because the standard narrative right now for people who I will term as charter skeptics, mm -hmm. is that a charter school comes into a district, it drains money away, the district has less money, and therefore it becomes a fiscal problem. I'm not saying that there isn't a fiscal problem. In fact, I, I'm concerned by some of the results about the fiscal impact on districts. But the narrative is one that I think is more subtle. As you lose enrollments into charter schools, you find that the per pupil student costs, after going through a whole econometric model and holding all sorts of other things constant, holding student characteristics constant, holding the density of the mm -hmm. district constant, you know, all, all sorts of things that, that might impact the spending on a district, what you find is that the per pupil spending on average goes up. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised when I first saw this, again, it didn't fit with what my narrative was. But the more I thought about it, and the more I researched, it began to make sense to me, because of this idea of a district having fixed costs. In right, other right. words, let's say you lose 10% of your enrollment to charter schools, but it happens over time. Well, slowly, as the kids leave, you may get rid of teaching positions, whether you riff teachers or whether through retirement attrition or whatever, but you're not going to close buildings. You're going to have to hit some sort of critical mass before you actually start closing buildings. Well, that's going to extend out the fixed cost for the district. So if, if there's two big takeaways that I take away from this, and I would suggest that this is something where charter skeptics and charter advocates could agree on. The first is that state policy matters. And the fact that we have so many different results and different uh, levels of effect from different states tells us that the state policy context 
actually is going to, to matter for this. But the other thing that I would say is that we, we ought to acknowledge that as charters grow, it is not fiscally neutral for the hosting district. Something is going on. I think we found pretty good evidence. It's almost entirely through an enrollment loss to charters, but that comes with a price. And so the real question then to me is, are we willing to pay that price? What are we getting for that price? And are we fully aware of of what the mechanism is for that? I would hope that at least we could start from that and then kind of go from there in, in, in terms of answering some of those other right. questions. And as you say, there's a variation at the state level, in part because some states do provide some kind of transitional aid, right, to school districts that lose kids to charter schools. With this understanding, right, that the policymakers knew that there would be this period when it would be hard for them to reduce these fixed costs. So they, they do provide some of that extra funding out there. And that's part of what we're picking up there. Is that, is that fair to say? You know, that was the thing where David and I went back and forth a lot too. And I think that this is something that has to be kind of the next stage of research. Yeah, in some cases, we've got states that have compensatory policies. In many cases, those have been not implemented consistently. I think of Massachusetts offhand, they've had a compensatory policy for a while, but a lot of times it hasn't been fully funded. But there are other cases. We do have some other cases where we know that those policies have been in place. But also, I was interested, in, and again, this was at, at David's urging that we, we take more of a look at this. We tended to find that local revenue tended to be the revenue that went up yeah, more than yeah. state revenue, which is really interesting because who is authorizing the charters? Who's pushing the charters? Is it the state's? Are the localities or is it some combination? You know, it always comes back to my home state, New Jersey, for me when I think about these things. Initially, New Jersey, the state authorizes the charter schools, but not the localities. Now, in in the case of what we found, we found it was the state that was actually uh, uh, driving more revenues toward the uh, uh, district. But in some other cases, it's the locality. Are the localities aware of that? Again, here comes the policy question. Is this the best use of that money? Is it better for us to put it toward charter proliferation? Or if we can raise that money, ought we to use it in district schools to make to, to make them better? And that kind of brings up this whole idea of cost versus spending. Mm-hmm. And spending is just what you put out. Cost is what it actually takes to get your students to where you want to be. What we've got in this report are spending and revenue models. We do not have cost models. And I think that is extremely important for us to hammer home. We are not talking about whether the cost of a student, of educating a student has changed. We're talking about whether the amount of money being collected or the money being outlaid has changed. Coming in and Those out. are two very, very different things. I'm glad you said that, Mark. And I think that's actually a, a pretty good segue because, I mean, you're right. We, we're not observing costs. And actually, that's the point I was going to make. Not only are we not observing the students' costs, but we're not observing the district's costs. And I think probably the the biggest problem I have with the whole conversation and the sort of biggest difference of opinion that I have with Mark is just has to do with the way that we use the word cost. So I get the concept, right? You have a thing that you want to achieve. uh, And so how much money does it take to achieve that? In the abstract, it's subjective. But in practice, it's very hard to connect any specific spending 
with any specific outcomes. So in practice, cost isn't an objective word, it's a subjective word. Sort of a related point is that, you know, the fact that a district spends more money doesn't necessarily mean that costs have risen, right? So let me just give a couple examples. If we, in fact, triple Title I funding, as Biden wants to do, costs will not have risen uh, the, the morning after we do that, right? Arguably, you know, we should, right? Maybe there's a need, but the connection between what we're spending and what we should spend is extremely fuzzy and subjective. Similarly, when it comes to these school districts, it's not clear, right, to me, if costs have gone up. <laughs> the school districts are getting more money. They're spending that money, which is what you do when you get more money. Whether or not the money reflects higher costs depends on, you know, sort of what you sort of consider inevitable spending and what isn't. So I don't want to deny the sort of nugget of truth to what Mark's saying, which is there is some lumpiness, right, that's created when charters come in and enrollment declines. But I really don't think it's appropriate to assume that when the amount of money that a place gets goes up, that its costs have risen. And so my takeaway is, is different. My biggest takeaway is that it, we're overshooting. So maybe there is a case for, for giving a little bit more money to districts that are afflicted by charters, but we can't tell that from this study. And it seems like districts are getting a lot more money. And I guess the final point I'll say, since I've been talking for a long time, is I think there's some pretty plausible mechanisms here. We can't always connect the dots. But, you know, as near and dear as New Jersey is to Mark's heart, right, it does have, I think, better sort of pass-through policy for charters than a lot of places, right? Charters have access to a fair chunk of local funds in New Jersey, I think. Um, and that's not true in a lot of places. Uh, and so to me, that's actually one of the big stories from the report, right, is, of course, if kids are leaving, uh, but the money isn't, then revenues per pupil and by extension, spending per pupil is going to go up. If I may, one of the projects that I'm involved in outside of this is with the Shanker Institute. And I work with Bruce Baker, who was my advisor at Rutgers and over, oversaw the first draft of uh, uh, this work, actually. Bruce has been developing these cost models to try to tease out this connection between uh, how much money we spend, what the student outcomes that we have are we can see that money does matter. And at the same time, you can spend money inefficiently in a way that doesn't necessarily lead to an outcome. So this is ongoing work that, again, we're not addressing that here. Although I think what we're doing is important in that we're kind of laying a groundwork for maybe having a more substantive and serious conversation about these things. The, the other thing that I point out is that there are many other things that we ought to be thinking about with charter schools other than simply, are we spending enough in the right places to affect student outcome? We have a lot of other things that we should be thinking about in terms of, are we protecting taxpayer interests? You know, I think that one thing that we can all agree on is that in many cases, we have had ineffective charter school oversight, and we have got to get better uh, about this. I put this as part of a piece of a larger conversation. It's one factor involved in, in charter proliferation, but it certainly isn't the other. In fact, tomorrow, I'm going to have a piece out with NJPP about uh, the effect of charter schools on the racial composition of the teaching corps in Camden, New Jersey. This is not anything that has directly to do with student outcomes. But I would contend it's extremely important and it's something that we ought to be uh, considering in the full conversation. Yeah, yeah. We, we did a study about that issue in North Carolina. No, it's, it's very relevant. 
So it seems like if I can try to summarize a little bit, what we think we see going on here is that the, the surprise is that, you know, th- does not appear in most places that, that the growth of charter schools is reducing per pupil spending in districts. In fact, it seems to be uh, related to an increase in that spending especially in local spending. We haven't discussed this, but we found, uh, you found, that it's uh, that there's a neutral to positive relationship in terms of instructional spending. So that's also good news. But that the reason this is happening, one reason is because we have these policies on the books that basically don't give charter schools the full amount of money that some would argue they should get because we're not letting all of the money simply follow the child to those charter schools. And so sort of the good news for the charter world is, hey, you know, maybe this argument that's often used to attack charter schools may not be true, this case that they're hurting school districts financially. On the flip side, those of us that would like charter schools to get equal funding or get all of the money that, quote, they deserve, you know, if that actually happened, then maybe then the districts actually would be getting hurt financially. So in other words, this this sort of compromise that we have in most states where we have charter schools, they're allowed to grow, but they don't get all the per-pupil money that maybe they, quote, uh, you know, should, has allowed us to protect school districts. Uh, and in a way that, you know, that is an, maybe a reasonable political compromise. You know, that if we went in a direction where, again, some of us wonks might want to go, where it just seems fair that all the money should follow the child, then we'd, we'd actually would have a different dynamic playing out. Uh, and those districts maybe would be getting hurt financially. I would push back on one thing, and that is the idea that the pot of money is a zero-sum game, and either it's going to come from the charters or it's going to come from the district. That's not necessarily the case. It could be, Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to state this with any certainty one way or the other, but it could be that the taxpayers are being asked to pay more to have charter schools proliferate. The fact that the local revenue is going up suggests to me that maybe that's going on again, that this study did not address that, but it is something that we ought to be thinking about then. If chartering is actually costing the taxpayers more money because, for example, we have a lot of redundant systems of school administration and we have, uh, with in the case of smaller charters, essentially de facto school districts that can't be brought uh, up to scale to get the same economies. If that's what's going on, then we ought to take a step back and ask ourselves, is this the best use of these additional funds? This report is not addressing that, but it's an important consideration before we start making the charge for having more charters and letting them proliferate. We've got to work out some of these very serious policy uh, questions. And to my mind, we're not there yet. All right. Well, that is well said, Mark. We will let you have the last word. So thank you so much, Mark Weber, again, analyst at the New Jersey Policy Perspective, author of Robbers or Victims, Charter Schools and District Finances. Thanks again for the great work. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. Fascinating conversation there we just had with Mark, aka Jersey Jazz Man. And uh, hey, love it that people are all scratching their heads about Fordham and, and Mark working together. We, we like to throw curveballs like that sometimes. We do indeed. We, we like debates around here, healthy debate. Oh, we do. Oh, so speaking of a healthy debate, Super Bowl halftime show, thumbs up or thumbs down? 
I just, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I guess I'm still back in the day when uh, Whitney Houston did the Super Bowl halftime show. That's yeah. how old I am. There was a great ranking that was going around of all the Super Bowl halftime shows, and it really was fun. Of course, number one was Prince singing Purple Rain in yep. Driving Rain. I mean, that awesome. was that. You just can't beat that. You can't beat can't that. Can't beat it. Forgot about that one. The fact that my mother knew who The weekend was, was my big surprise. So. That is amazing. She knew what The weekend was. So still have, <laughs> we still haven't yeah. held it down. So. All right, Amber, what you got for us this week? We've got some interesting survey results. We're going to do our quiz as we normally do every so often. National poll of the general population. It was administered by um, Morning Consult, commissioned by Ed Choice. About 2,000 adults were surveyed just a few weeks ago in January as part of a monthly poll that this big you know, polling organization, Morning Consult, does. Uh, it's a representative sample. It's weighted based on demographic data from the 2016 current population survey. They asked parents a variety of educational questions uh, on a bunch of topics, but I'm just zeroed in on the COVID-19 questions because I thought they were fascinating. So here we go. Number one, what percentage of adults responded that once an FDA vaccine is approved and available, that teachers and other staff working in public schools in person should be mandated to get it? 90%. 80%. 44%. Oh my gosh. Wow. 44. We're in a bubble, David. We're in a bubble. We're in an awesome bubble, Mike. They don't (laughs) want them strong-armed. What percentage said that students in those same schools should be mandated to get the vaccine? I'm going to go with what, like 10% then? What? (laughs) Teachers are- 35%. Yeah, 36%. All right. Number two, what percentage of school parents this time responded that if an FDA approved vaccine was available to them- right now, that they would agree themselves to be vaccinated and separately agree to have their child vaccinated. 67%. Yeah, I think that's about right. And and less for the kids. Yeah. 52 for themselves, 48 for their kids. The kid was a little higher than I thought, but I guess if they consider it safe for themselves, maybe it's not so surprising. Number three on that same question, when looking at subgroups, Democrats and baby boomers between 62 and 64% are the groups most likely to indicate that they will be vaccinated assuming FDA approval and availability. The three groups to respond that they are least likely to get vaccinated are low-income adults making less than 35,000, adults living in rural areas, and Black Americans. And of those groups, the latter indicates the least receptivity to vaccinations. So, what percentage of Black Americans do you think indicated that they are not likely to be vaccinated right now? Uh, 70%. Oh my gosh, 31%. You said not likely. Right. Did we're guess thinking of it the opposite way? <laughs> right. We, we were saying that only 30% are going to take it. Ah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. I had it backwards in my head. All right. And then number four, what percentage of school parents in January were comfortable, either very or somewhat comfortable with their kids going back to school right now? 50. Yeah, 60%. Okay, 46. Nearly split with comfortable and uncomfortable, although there was a slight little uptick in the comfortable percentage uh, since December. I think it was like three more percentage points uh, in January saying they were comfortable. Number five, um, I'm not really sure of how they did the sample for this question. I think it's just parents who show some level of discomfort with the return to school. But either way, what percentage of school parents think that it won't be safe to send their children back to school for in-person classes in their own community until after May? Uh, 30%. Mm. 
25. 47. Oh. Well, higher, I guess, when you're asked about your own community and the, what your rates are looking like. Um, well, so really, I mean, you've got about half of parents out there not comfortable and they really don't expect to be comfortable <laughs> until maybe next fall. That's interesting. Right. Number six, 43% of school parents in July responded that they were highly favorable to the idea of homeschooling as a result of the coronavirus. What do you think that percentage indicating high favorability to homeschooling looked like in January? Zero percent. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm going to go with 20. Ah, 18 percent. Oh, right. it was so a big yeah. decline. Yeah. Big stop, decline. stop whining, Patrilli. I guess <laughs> the availability of the vaccines, uh, but yeah, people started changing their minds. Number seven, school parents were disaggregated into homeschool, private, and district school parents. So 51% of the homeschool parents said that their child's academic learning was progressing very well compared to 39% of private school parents who said that. What percent of district school parents do you think responded that their child's academic learning was progressing very well? 25%. I'm going to go with 35. I think people have no idea. Uh, 20%. Okay. Your guess there was understandable, David, because again, so much data in previous times just feels like kid, kids can bomb tests. They can be right. shown to not be proficient and parents still think they're doing great. But this is interesting, Amber, that they, uh, that, that parents seem to be 80% of parents know that something's not great. That's great. Last one, 42% of private school parents say their child's school is operating via in-person classes only. What percentage of district school parents say the same about their child's school? I think it's 25%. Sounds about right. 21. Yeah. Pretty close. That's what I've got. You guys didn't do so bad that time. Uh, yes. <laughs> so maybe, perhaps we've been staring it's, at some of these similar polling data. Uh, <laughs> I mean, this is really important. If Maybe for the first time ever, parents are saying, wow, my kid's not doing great in school. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's an opportunity for us to maybe get them to see more clearly the challenges here. You know, so I, I just makes me wonder if, if that's going to just bounce right back, you know, when kids go back to school, then parents can say, oh, everything's fine again. Or right. if they're open to, to really seeing that, wow, um, test score data or other data really are, are worth looking at and worth being concerned about and doing something about to get mm -hmm. their kids uh, achievement up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mike, you know, we've both been sort of pessimists about how much this will change the politics of school choice. The longer it drags on, the more optimistic on that front I'm getting. Um, I do think it's a game changer. The longer it goes on, the more it's just untenable for vast swaths of the population to not be able to send their kids to school. Either we need to give them a voucher so they can educate their kid another way, or we need to reopen schools. And if we're, you know, I, I just think something's got to give here. But the homeschool going down is kind of curious in that vein then, David. I mean, you're saying... Well, right. Because because that's not tenable. It's demonstrating the value of some sort of school choice. It's demonstrating the sort of inherent disempowerment that comes with being um, subject to a monopoly, whether it's a public or private one. Parents are over a barrel. And the longer it happens, the more people are going to say, yeah, people need some sort of escape route. We can't just force them you know, to put up with this. I do think we're, we're seeing a shift out there, though. I think we're seeing a trend towards reopening that's real. Certainly the agreement this week with Chicago uh, teachers agreeing to go back. I think that's happening for a variety of reasons, some political, some because the, you know, the infection rates are going down and some because, as you say, that, you know, the, the unions are in the hot seat. They're at least among elites. They're really getting 
more and more pressure to say, come on, guys, this is enough is enough. We got to get kids back. Now, that doesn't mean that all kids will be back or there won't be a lot of games about what in-person school looks like, including in Montgomery County, where it sounds like uh, some places they're going to have kids in classrooms, but not teachers. I mean, there's going to be all kinds of stuff. But I I think, David, you're right that there's a a sense that the teachers can't keep saying no and have it just be a hard no forever and ever. That's getting to be a difficult position to maintain. Mike, and I have one more comment, which is for crying out loud, get vaccinated. Yeah, that's Absurd. right. The manifest failures of our education system are apparent, <laughs> are apparent in these data. They are. Yes. If you get an offer to vaccine, take it. Okay. Hey, we are way over time. So we have got to wrap it up. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.